You're listening to the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. I'm an associate professor of surgery and director of the Burn Center at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. I'm also the uh, editor and author of uh, Pharmacology for the Pre-Hospital Professional. It's available on Elsevier. Um, today, the topic that I'd like to take on is the uh, second of two podcasts. The first one we did was on uh, myocardial infarction and myocardial ischemia. And um, we introduced the basic uh, concepts of myocardial ischemia. Uh, talked about some of the roles of thrombolytics and um, some of the other agents uh, used with thrombolytics. And then uh, the idea of this second part of the podcast was uh, to discuss some um, some of the role of uh, percutaneous uh, coronary intervention, or PCI. Now, in the first podcast, we talked about trying to reestablish flow to the ischemic heart using uh, various thrombolytics, and we presented some of the advantages and disadvantages of those various agents. Now, primary coronary intervention, which we'll call PCI, PCI uh, for the remainder of this podcast, just to make it easier, and, and that's what my notes typically say, uh, the major advantages of primary PCI over thrombolytic therapy include a higher rate of return of normal blood flow. And this is called TIMI-grade uh, blood flow, or TIMI-grade 3. And we discussed that uh, uh, somewhat um, in the first podcast. And it's and if you don't understand what TIMI-grade blood flow is, don't worry. It just really, it's... it's uh, return of, of blood flow that is more non-pathological, more of what your typical uh, blood flow is like. Uh, the other advantages of primary PCI is a lower risk of intracranial hemorrhage because we're not using drugs that uh, prevent the formation of blood clot and an ability to stratify risk based on the severity and distribution of coronary artery disease. Well, why is it that we can stratify risk following primary PCI? Well, it's pretty obvious is that we're able to get a better uh, delineation of of uh, what the nature and severity of the disease is because we're doing a, a primary coronary intervention with cardiac cath and, and uh, perhaps balloon angioplasty. Now, data from several randomized trials have suggested that PCI is preferable to thrombolytic therapy for patients with acute MI who are a higher risk, including those who are older than 75 years of age, uh, those with anterior infarctions, and those with hemodynamic instability. The cardiologists have done a very good job in, in, in basing their practices on, on rather rigorous uh, evidence-based guidelines, and there's just innumerable studies that uh, support uh, those comments. Uh, there was a recent meta-analysis that showed improved short-term and long-term outcomes with PCI compared to thrombolytic therapy. Now, it should be noted that that analysis included lysis with both SK and TPA, and the differences are less marked with only trials using newer thrombolytic agents. Now, the more um, PCIs that a particular center is doing, the better their outcomes are going to be. Um, um, and uh, the time to revascularization and the volume that a particular center does with PCI and the success of that PCI uh, are uh, related. Now, there's been recent uh, studies that have shown uh, higher mortality when door-to-needle time exceeds 120 minutes. That's two hours. And a lower mortality in hospitals performing a PCI more than three times a month. So, yeah, this shouldn't be much of a surprise to anyone that if you're doing a larger number of these procedures, one can pretty much anticipate uh, uh, better outcomes. Therefore, direct angioplasty, if performed in a timely manner, typically, uh, ideally within 60 minutes, by a uh, experienced uh, team, may be the preferred method of revascularization since it offers more complete revascularization with improved restoration of normal coronary blood flow and also detailed information regarding the coronary anatomy. Now, those circumstances where PCI is clearly preferable to thrombolytics in the face of an acute myocardial infarction are in those situations where we have contraindications to thrombolytic therapy. We've talked about that in the last podcast. Those patients who are in cardiogenic shock 
and patients in whom uncertain diagnosis prompt cardiovascular, uh, excuse me, cardiac catheterization and revealed the coronary occlusion. Those are situations where uh, you're better off going uh, to PCI um, than thrombolytics. Now, situations in which PCI may be preferable to thrombolytics in the face of uh, an acute MI are the elderly patients, uh, patients uh, older than 75 years of age. If the patient has hemodynamic instability, prior coronary bypass grafting, a previous uh, uh, operative patient, large anterior infarctions, and patients who've had a prior MI. Now, those are patients who might have a benefit by going with primary PCI. Now, primary angioplasty for acute MI results in significant reduction in mortality, but is limited by the possibility of, a, of abrupt vessel closure. Uh, recurrent in-hospital ischemia, reocclusion of the infarct-related artery, as well as restenosis. Now, use of coronary stents has been shown to reduce restenosis and adverse cardiac outcomes in both routine and in high-risk patients undergoing PCI. Now, in the uh, last uh, podcast, we talked a lot about the glycoprotein 2B3A receptor antagonists, and the glycoprotein 2B3A receptor antagonists do inhibit the final common pathway of platelet aggregation, and it blocks the cross-linking of activated platelets, uh, and their use uh, in patients undergoing PCI has become a routine. The benefits of glycoprotein 2B3A inhibition in coronary stenting appear to be additive. So if you're doing coronary stenting, uh, you're going to get benefit. If you add a glycoprotein 2B3A inhibition, you're going to get protein. And if you add the two of those treatments together, you're going to get a uh, additive uh, response. Now, the ADMIRAL trial evaluated uh, abixacam um, as an ad- adjunct to primary percutaneous transluminal angioplasty, also known as PTCA, and stenting in 300 acute MI patients and showed a nearly 50% relative reduction in the incidence of death, recurrent MI, and urgent revascularization at 30 days, uh, although this was associated with increased incidence of minor bleeding when patients received glycoprotein 2B3A receptor antagonists. Some other indications for angioplasty in the face of acute MI include patients who fail thrombolytic therapy, uh, patients who need a rescue PCI improves outcomes, although the initial success rate is lower than that of a primary angioplasty. Uh, reocclusion is more common, and the mortality rate is higher than in patients who have undergone a primary PCI. So what that is saying is that in patients who fail thrombolytic therapy and then uh, require PCI, uh, that, that's certainly a rescue therapy, but those patients are not going to do as well if they went primary uh, to uh, PCI. Some other treatments that are adjuvant um, in the treatment of uh, uh, STEMI, uh, aspirin, uh, clearly an old favorite. Uh, aspirin has been shown to reduce mortality in acute uh, myocardial infarction to the same degree as thrombolytic therapy. And aspirin's effect are additive to thrombolytics. In addition, aspirin reduces the risk of reinfarction. So clearly aspirin is a main staple of uh, therapy in somebody undergoing ST segment elevation myocardial infarction. Uh, heparin. Administration of full-dose heparin at thrombolytic therapy with TPA is essential to decrease reocclusion after successful reperfusion. Dosing should be adjusted to weight, uh, typically a bolus of 60 units per kilo up to a maximum of 4,000 units, and an initial infusion rate of 12 units per kilo per hour up to a maximum of 1,000 units per hour, with adjustment to keep the partial thromboplastin time of the PTT between 50 and 70 seconds. Heparin should be uh, continued for 24 to 48 hours. 
Nitrates are also a very common drug we see you uh, use uh, following a uh, STEMI. Nitrates uh, reduce myocardial oxygen demand by decreasing preload and uh, decreasing the afterload. Nitrates may also improve myocardial oxygen supply by increasing subendocardial perfusion and collateral blood flow to the ischemic region. Another very popular drug we see you use a lot are the beta blockers. Beta blockers are certainly helpful both in the early management as well as the uh, long-term uh, therapy in patients who have uh, myocardial ischemia. Uh, immediate beta blockade with metoprolol uh, does produce a significant reduction in recurrent ischemia reinfarction, but it does not appear that uh, it may result in a decrease in uh, mortality. There was a study recently done called the Capricorn study, and the non-selective beta blockers uh, decreased mortality rates from 15 to 12% in patients with MI and ejection fractions less than 40%, although the primary endpoint, death or hospitalization, was not changed uh, in that particular study, also known as the Capricorn study. Now, the administration of IV beta blockade um, should be considered for patients presenting with an acute MI, especially those who have continued ischemic discomfort and uh, have that sympathetic uh, hyperactivity, which will manifest itself as hypertension or tachycardia. Therapy should be avoided in patients with moderate or severe heart failure, hypotension, bradycardia, or heart block, and severe bronchospastic disease. Typically, metoprolol can be given as 5 milligram IV bolus, uh, repeated every 5 minutes for a total of 3 doses. Uh, because of its brief half-life, esmolol is more advent- may be more advantageous in situations where precise control of a heart rate is necessary or rapid drug withdrawal may be needed if adverse events occur. This is a, I'm a big fan of esmolol for this. Um, drugs like metoprolol have a longer half-life, and if the patient has an um, uh, adverse um, effect from the metoprolol, you're going to have to deal with it for a longer period of time than you might with esmolol, which has a half-life of roughly about nine minutes. Uh, oral beta blockade uh, has been clearly demonstrated to decrease mortality rates after acute MI and should be initiated for all patients who can tolerate it, even if they've been treated with an IV beta blocker. Uh, but again, this is kind of more of a maintenance type of therapy, and it's not something you're going to be doing acutely in the face of an acute STEMI. Diabetes mellitus is not is not a contraindication to the use of beta blockers. The, the reason why that's mentioned is that beta blockers can produce something called hypoglycemic unawareness syndrome. And what that means is that if you think about the um, um, uh, signs and symptoms of a patient who's hypoglycemic, they can have uh, feelings of anxiety, hypertension, tachycardia, diaphoresis, sense of impending doom. Those signs and symptoms are, are moderated or, or mediated mostly through an increased adrenergic uh, response uh, through uh, hormones like epinephrine. Uh, that response is blunted or blinded with the use of beta blockers. So if you if you have somebody who's on oral beta blocker and they're diabetic, you'll you'll see that there's a uh, typically uh, uh, a warning with beta blockers is that it can cause a hypoglycemic unawareness that somebody could be hypoglycemic and not present the outward manifestations that are protective. Another class of drugs that's gotten wildly popular in, in patients who have had uh, myocardial ischemia are the angiotensin converting inhibitors. Uh, uh, ACE inhibitors have been shown unequivocally to improve hemodynamics, functional capacity and symptoms, and survival in patients with chronic congestive heart failure. Uh, ACE inhibitors also prevent the development of congestive heart failure in patients with asymptomatic left ventricular dysfunction. There was something called the SAVE, S-A-V-E trial, and it's, uh, the SAVE trial showed that patients with left ventricular dysfunction, that is an ejection fraction less than 40%, after MI had a 21% improvement in survival after treatment with an ACE inhibitor, Captopril. Now, a smaller but significant reduction in mortality has been seen in patients who were treated with Captopril in the ISIS-4 study. 
There was another study called the HOPE study. These cardiology studies all have very cool names, and there's just dozens of them. But the HOPE study demonstrated improved survival uh, additive to the benefits of aspirin and beta blockers with ACE inhibitor ramipril used used as secondary prevention. The mechanisms responsible for the benefits of ACE inhibitors probably include limitation of progressive left ventricular dysfunction and enlargement, uh, something known as ventricular remodeling that often occurs uh, following infarction. It's for that remodeling benefit that you'll see the cardiologists often add ACE inhibitors. Recent studies have suggested that ACE inhibition can ameliorate the endothelial dysfunction uh, that patients uh, uh, can see in uh, conditions of atherosclerosis. Now, ACE inhibition should start early, preferably within the first 20 o- 24 hours after infarction. Now, there's also these drugs called angiotensin receptor blockers, uh, ARBs. The angiotensin receptor blockers have hemodynamic effects very similar to the ACE inhibitors. There was a recent study called the Valiant study, and what the Valiant study did is it compared the ACE inhibitor captopril to the uh, angiotensin receptor blocker valsartan, and that particular study found equivalent outcomes in patients with left ventricular dysfunction after myocardial infarction. The combination of valsartan and captopril was not more effective, but did produce more side effects. Another class of drugs that often get thrown around are the calcium channel blockers or calcium channel antagonists. There have been randomized clinical trials uh, that have not demonstrated that routine use of calcium channel blockers improves survival after MIs. Uh, in fact, a meta-analysis suggested high doses of short-acting um, uh, nifedipine increases mortality in myocardial infarction. Diltiazem is the only calcium channel blocker that has been proven to have any tangible benefits, uh, reducing uh, reinfarction rates and uh, recurrent ischemia in patients with non-Q-wave infarctions who um, do not have evidence of uh, congestive heart failure. Uh, calcium channel blockers may be useful in patients whose post-infarction course is complicated by recurrent angina because these agents not only reduce myocardial oxygen demand, but also inhibit coronary uh, artery vasoconstriction. One of the things that used to be commonly done uh, when I was a paramedic particularly was the use of antiarrhythmics, putting patients who were felt to be having uh, some sort of uh, element of myocardial ischemia on lidocaine, and uh, we could talk about the antiarrhythmic benefits of lidocaine, if there are any. But even though lidocaine increases uh, the frequency of uh, PVCs in the early uh, 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 ventricular fibrillation, overall mortality is not decreased uh, with use of lidocaine. In fact, meta-analysis of pool data have demonstrated increased mortality from the routine use of lidocaine. Let me say that again, that a meta-analysis uh, pooled data. Okay, so there's clearly some inherent problems with this kind of research. It's a meta-analysis. It's it's basically pooled data, uh, but they have demonstrated increased mortality from the routine use of lidocaine. Routine prophylactic administration of lidocaine is no longer recommended. Nonetheless, lidocaine may be used after an episode of sustained ventricular tachycardia or ventricular fibrillation and considered in patients with non-sustained ventricular tachycardia. Now, why would one do that over amiodarone? I'm not, that's, that's probably a topic for a different day. Perhaps the most important points in the prevention and management of arrhythmias after acute MI is correcting hypoxemia and maintaining normal serum potassium magnesium levels. Okay, so that's an important thing. Make sure the patient doesn't get hypoxic. Make sure your potassium and magnesium levels are low. Serum electrolytes should be followed closely, particularly after diuretic therapy. Well, let's go through that again. Somebody's getting Lasix, uh, Lasix, 
uh, is notorious for dropping somebody's potassium. That uh, drop in the potassium is a pro-arrhythmogenic uh, situation. So rather than giving the patient lidocaine, just be very careful and make sure that your magnesium and your potassium have been corrected appropriately, particularly after diuresing somebody with uh, Lasix. A magnesium depletion is also a frequently overlooked cause of persistent ectopy. Uh, here at Vanderbilt, um, one of my colleagues, uh, Dr. Corey Slovis, uh, who works in our emergency department, he is um, a psychopath about uh, magnesium replacement. Uh, it is God's electrolyte. Uh, Dr. Slovis is, is very keen on magnesium replacement, talks a lot about that. Serum magnesium levels, even if it is within normal limits, may not reflect myocardial concentrations. Routine administration of magnesium has uh, not been shown to reduce, reduce mortality after acute MI, but empiric administration of 2 grams of magnesium IV in patients with early ventricular ectopy is probably a reasonable and good idea in safe practice. Now, what are some of the potential complications that a patient can have following an MI? Uh, well, they can certainly have um, additional chest pain and, and a recurrent MI. If angina or chest pain cannot be controlled medically, um, uh, and a patient who's had an MI or is accomplished, or excuse me, is accompanied by uh, a low blood pressure or hemodynamic stability, then that's really an indication for insertion of an enteroidic balloon pump, which is something that people may not be thinking of. Is that uh, if my patient is still having chest pain and they're unstable, then you need to go and uh, um, bring the game up a level, and that's insert a balloon pump. Uh, ventricular free wall rupture is another problem. Uh, typically occurs uh, during the first week after infarction, and the patient typically is an elderly patient. They're female to hypertensive. Uh, early use of thrombolytic therapy reduces the incidence of cardiac rupture, but late use may actually increase the risk. Uh, ventricular septal rupture, again, uh, something that's uh, uh, pretty dramatic when you see it. Septal rupture presents as severe heart failure or cardiogenic shock. Patients have a pan-systolic murmur or a, a parasternal thrill. The hallmark finding is a left-to-right intracardiac shunt or step-up in oxygen saturation, uh, and that's if the patient has um, something like a swan in. Diagnosis could be made reasonably straightforward uh, with the use of an echocardiogram. Rapid institution of enteroidic balloon pump uh, and supportive pharmacological measures is necessary in patients who have ventricular septal rupture. Operative repair is the only viable option for long-term survival in these patients. The timing of surgery has been controversial, but most people would agree that um, repair should be undertaken within uh, 48 hours following rupture of the ventricular septum. Uh, acute mitral regurgitation is another late comp or late uh, or another complication of uh, MI. Uh, ischemic mitral regurge is usually associated with inferior uh, MIs and ischemia or infarction of the posterior papillary muscle. muscle. Uh, papillary muscle rupture typically occurs within two to seven days after MI, and the patients typically have uh, uh, present dramatically with acute onset of pulmonary edema, hypotension, and, and even cardiogenic shock. Management includes uh, afterload uh, reduction with nitroprusside, um, um, use of an intraortic balloon pump as, again, temporizing measures. Inotropic and vasopressor therapy may be needed to support cardiac output and blood pressure. Again, definitive therapy, however, is surgical uh, valve repair or replacement, which should be undertaken as soon as possible as clear, uh, clinical deterioration can be uh, rather sudden. Uh, Right-sided ventricular infarcts. Uh, right-sided ventricular infarcts 
uh, occurred about up to 30% or a third of patients with inferior infarcts and uh, clinically significant about 10%. The combination of a clear chest X-ray with jugular venous distension in a patient with uh, inf- uh, inferior wall MI should lead to the suspicion of a coexisting right ventricular infarct. This was actually on my critical care boards uh, recently. Uh, so again, what happens is the patient has looks like they have systemic signs of heart failure, uh, JVD, and maybe some edema, but their chest X-ray is clear. They're not having signs of pulmonary edema. And so what's going on there is, is that the right side of the heart is failing, um, and the left side is not failing, hence the absence of uh, pulmonary edema. Now, patients with cardiogenic shock on the basis of right ventricular infarction have a better prognosis than those with left-sided pump failure. Uh, this may be due in part that the uh, fact that the right ventricle tends to uh, return to normal over a period of time with supportive therapy, although such therapy may uh, need to be prolonged. In patients with right ventricular infarction, uh, right ventricular preload should be maintained fluid administration. So this is somebody who's having an acute MI, they get hypotensive, and what you end up doing is having to treat them with volume because the the um, the heart, uh, the right side of the heart basically becomes a conduit for fluid. And so to maintain to maintain left ventricular preload and afterload or output, you have to continue with uh, preload. Um, in patients, um, let's see, maintaining... Uh, uh, arterial ven- venous synchrony is also important in those patients optimize right ventricular filling. So uh, for patients with continued hemodynamic instability, a balloon pump may be useful, particularly because of elevated right ventricular pressures and volumes increase wall stress and oxygen consumption, and that will decrease right coronary perfusion, exacerbating right ventricular ischemia. Uh, cardiogenic shock is a complication of acute MI and has a mortality rate approaching between 60 to 90% in uh, different series. Hemodynamically, cardiogenic shock is really defined by a cardiac index of less than 1.8 liters per minute um, per meter squared, and the patient has an elevated uh, wedge pressure or pulmonary occlusive pressure of greater than 18 millimeters of mercury. So you've got the patient adequately preloaded, their wedge is 18 or greater, and their index is less than 1.8. Prompt reperfusion of the occluded coronary artery is really the best way to reduce the mortality uh, with MI associated with cardiogenic shock. But because thrombolytic therapy does not uh, appear to be very effective in cardiogenic shock, primary PCA, excuse me, primary PCI, or basically angioplasty or stent placement, is recommended. Now, intra-aortic uh, balloon pump should be re- uh, be placed uh, before the PCI to stabilize the patient, enhance coronary blood flow, and reduce myocardial oxygen demand uh, while the PCI procedure is being carried out. Urgent coronary bypass grafting may be necessary if uh, left main coronary uh, stenosis is the reason why the patient is having uh, their ischemia and their subsequent cardiogenic shock. Now, non-STEMI is basically non-ST segment elevated MI. Now, the key to initial management of non-STEMI patients I present with uh, ST segment elevation is risk stratification. Now, the patient's overall risk is related to the severity of the pre-existing heart disease and the degree of the plaque instability. We let, we sometimes think of that you get a, a progressive narrowing of a coronary vessel until that um, a vessel narrows to the point where it occludes. But what we have kind of changed our paradigm is that people can have plaques, and those plaques can be relatively unstable. And so you can have a plaque developing that doesn't result in a critical narrowing of the coronary artery, but when that plaque ruptures, as it ruptures, it, it produces a surface that is uh, very 
prothrombogenic, meaning so that you've got this plaque that doesn't reduce the blood flow down that vessel enough, but then as it ruptures, it puts out this big, ugly, ulcerated surface, which then causes a, a blood clot to form, and that could do that very quickly. And that's what we talk about, stability of the plaque. Now, the risk of progression to acute MI or death and acute coronary syndromes increases with age. ST segment depression on the EKG identifies patients at risk for clinical events. So conversely, a normal EKG confers an excellent short-term prognosis. Biochemical markers of cardiac injury are also a predictive outcome. Elevated levels of T are associated with an increased risk of cardiac events and a higher 30-day mortality. Now, aspirin is a mainstay for acute coronary syndrome. Aspirin reduces the risk of death of myocardial infarction by approximately 50% in patients with unstable angina or non-QAVE MI. Uh, aspirin also reduces events of after a resolution of acute coronary syndrome and should be continued indefinitely. Take your aspirin every day. I certainly do. Um, clopidogel and uh, teclopatine are agents that uh, inhibit uh, ADP-induced platelet activation and are more potent than aspirin. They can be used in place of aspirin if necessary. Uh, they are used in combination with aspirin when intracoronary stents are placed. Clopidogel is generally better tolerated than the ticlid, uh, since the risk of neutropenia is lower with the uh, use of clopidogel. The uh, CURE trial randomized 12,500 patients with unstable angina to uh, clopidogel or placebo in addition to aspirin and demonstrated a significant reduction of MI stroke and cardiovascular death uh, from a rate of 11.4 to a rate of 9.3%. It should be noted this benefit came with about a 1% absolute increase in major non-life-threatening bleeds as well as a 2.8% absolute increase in major life-threatening bleeds is associated with cabbage within five days. So there you have some additional information on uh, the acute management of a myocardial and, and uh, ischemia. Um, uh, I think probably the most uh, beneficial information that we can certainly provide you is that uh, early consultation with our colleagues and cardiologists. I'm just a simple surgical intensivist. I run a burn unit, and when I actually and it comforts me the greatest is that I can call uh, one of uh, um, many of our eminent uh, uh, cardiologists, and they'll help us manage these patients. But as you can see, that there are certainly things that need to be done very early on uh, that'll improve outcomes with these patients. And many of you may be providing critical care in an environment where you don't have immediate access to cardiologists, much like the uh, that we do here at uh, Vanderbilt. Uh, my name is Jeff Guy. Um, the uh, podcast is Surgery IC Rounds. We uh, thank you for downloading and listening. Also, check out other podcasts that we have, uh, uh, one on pre-hospital drug therapy. We found it at prehospitaldrugs.com or uh, do a search on iTunes. Thank you for listening.